All right. I know that people will still be trickling in, but um, let's um, be respectful of everyone's time and convene our talk. So thank you so much for joining us for the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies uh, series on the Chinese economy. I'm Meg Withmeyer, I'm an associate professor at the Harvard Business School where I focus on the Chinese economy. And it's my absolute pleasure to welcome today, Professor Angela Zhang, who's associate professor and director of the Center for Chinese Law at the University of Hong Kong. She holds an LLB from Peking University and three degrees, her LLM, JD, and JSD from the University of Chicago Law School, where she worked directly with Judge Richard A. Posner, one of the American jurists that almost anyone knows by name. Uh, Angela is a specialist on a wide range of issues in law and economics in the state and business in China and beyond China. Her work has been published widely in law journals and an array of popular outlets. And we're very fortunate tonight or tomorrow morning, depending on where you're joining us, it's, um, it's morning in Hong Kong, um, to hear about her just published book, Chinese Antitrust Exceptionalism from Oxford University, Oxford University Press. The book explores the issues of antitrust in China's domestic and international competitive environment. It's a timely topic and no one better to talk about it than Professor Zhang. Um, so Professor Zhang will speak for about 45 minutes or so um, to introduce some of the ideas in the book and go beyond the book um, to talk about more contemporary issues. And then we'll have hopefully plenty of time for questions and answers. I remind you that you're welcome to put your question in the question box at the bottom of your screen at any point. Uh, feel free to identify yourself if you'd like or not. Ask a question anonymously is totally fine. And we'll look forward to hearing from Professor Zhang. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Matt, for the really generous introduction. Hello, everyone. Um, good evening at um, in America. <laughs> good morning in, uh, in Asia. Um, so I prepared some slides. I'd like to share my screen. OK. So you see it OK? Yep. OK. So. So my book, um, Chinese Antitrust Exceptionalism, as you see from my background, um, deals with how China regulates as an antitrust regulator, as well as how China is regulated as a target for regulation. And what I say China is exceptional is because China's unique political and economic institutions, which result in strong power imbalances um, between businesses and the government. Now this has implications on both how China regulates and is regulated. For instance, um, unlike other major antitrust jurisdictions such as the EU or the United States, businesses rarely challenge the Chinese antitrust authority. And as a result, entire administrative process is more or less internalized within the bureaucracy. And this makes it very important for us to understand the dynamics of the bureaucratic politics in China. Now, this power imbalances between government and businesses also make China a very unique target for regulation in foreign countries. Foreign policymakers often have very difficult time to dis disentangle the relationship between business and the state. And this makes it very challenging for them to determine what exactly is the scope of the Chinese companies. Are these individual companies or are they just part of the Greater China Inc? So the difficulty of answering this basic question of scope 
makes Chinese companies very vulnerable to antitrust challenges in other countries. So in the next 30 minutes or so, I will try to give you an overview of the issues I explore in this book and also show you how this analytical framework is useful for explaining the most recent regulatory events involving Alibaba, you know, Ant Group and other Chinese big tech firms. And I also hope to offer you some insights into the future US-China relations. So how does China regulate? Now, just last Saturday, Alibaba uh, received, not last Saturday, is actually April the, the 10th. So Alibaba received a record fine of 2.8 billion US dollars from the Chinese Antitrust Authority. Now guess what? how Alibaba responded? They thanked the regulators. And as you see in this press release announced by the firm, the firm accepted the penalty with sincerity and will ensure its compliance with the determination. Now contrast this with Google, which has been slapped with three fines from the European Commission. And as you can see from the press release there, Google was prepared to fight tooth and nail with the commission in EU court. And it is doing it right now, right? Now, Alibaba is not an exception. Now, China has been enforcing its antitrust law since 2008, and more than 12 years has passed since the law was implemented. However, so far, very few of the decisions made by the central authority has ever been challenged by businesses in court. Now, for instance, in 2015, Qualcomm, an American chip maker, received $1 billion US dollars fine in China, but they settled with the agency. Now, Tetrapack, which was hit with a fine of almost $99 million in 2016, stated in this press release, as you see in the last sentence, we are disappointed with the decision, but we decided to accept it and do not intend to appeal. So why are companies reluctant to challenge China's antitrust authority? Now, what makes it even more bizarre is as companies are reluctant to, to challenge agency decision, the overall number of administrative appeals in China is growing very rapidly. Now, this is largely because in 2014, China amended its administrative litigation law, making it significantly easier for plaintiffs to sue the government. So here you see from the economist report on this slide, you see a significant surge um, in court cases. Now, so if the judiciary is improving, then why haven't we seen more plaintiffs challenging um, enforcement in court? Now, for those of you who understand China very well, I mean, this is the Fairbanks Center, so you have a lot of experts here who know, you know, businesses know that generally they need to maintain a very good relationship with the government, and especially if they need to repeatedly interact with the government, right? I mean, so if you challenge the agency in court, you're essentially burning bridges with the government. Now, but what you might not know is that the Chinese antitrust authority, not just the antitrust authority, I would say, other law enforcement authorities as well are very adept at using media strategies to entice firms to cooperate and settle and what I call strategic shaming strategy. I won't emphasize on this, the point of strategic because they don't apply the sanction uniformly to all firms. They only apply it strategically. Now, let me give you an example. In 2013, the National Development Reform Commission, the NDIC, one of the three, uh, China's three former antitrust agencies announced on China State Television that it had been investigating Fuel's Time and several other infant formula manufacturers for antitrust violation. Now, the next day, the People's Daily, which is the party's mouthpiece, revealed the name of a few more companies that were involved. 
Now, curiously, uh, Meiji, Benjamin, and Fonterra, these three companies, um, which were subject to investigation at the time, but they were omitted in both the CCTV or the People's Daily News. Now, so you see that the NDIC, in this one single case, selectively exposed these firms to three different levels of media publicity. And generally speaking, the less cooperative a firm is, the more it is exposed negatively in the media. Now, Bill's Time, which is actually a Chinese company based in Hong Kong, was subject to the most uh, negative media exposure because it initially tried to launch a vigorous defense. And as a re result, this firm lost over one third of its market capitalization within one week. Now, at the end, the Bilstein also received a very hefty fine, but the market capitalization loss was much, much higher than the fine that they ultimately had to pay. Now, on the other hand, other infant formula firms that were proactive in settling with the government were rewarded with very generous leniency. Now, for instance, here I show you Wire's executive, one of the infant formula uh, producers, executive, even went on the dialogue TV show with a team of NDIC officials stating that they had quickly cooperated with the agency to provide all the documents the NDIC requested and immediately rectifies wrongdoing by reducing prices. This company ultimately received no penalty from the agency. Now, this tactic was very effective from the NDIC standpoint because the agency was very resource restrained. Uh, at that time, they had only about 25 people in Beijing. So they really cannot afford a very drawn out court battle. Right? I mean, so and this method allows the agency, they, they don't need to spend resources in defending the case or fighting it in court. So it quickly allowed the agency to establish itself as a very forceful and serious regulator. Now, as you know, Alibaba was subject to a record fine uh, on April the 10th. Now, what was more damaging to Alibaba is actually not the fine. It is what I call the strategic shaming sanction that was inflicted on the firm. So on Christmas Eve, if you may call last year, the Chinese antitrust regulator posted a very short, only one sentence announcement that it had been investigating Alibaba's choose one from two business practice, okay? And then only 10 minutes later, the People's Daily published a very long commentary endorsing the investigation. So this move was probably prepared in advance because it seems designed, this commentary seems to be designed to seek first mover advantage and to shape the rhetoric of the discussion of this case. Now, as you may recall, this one sentence announcement caused Alibaba stock prices to tumble. And on that day, um, Alibaba stock dropped by more than 13% in a single day, wiping out over 100 billion US dollars of market capitalization, okay? So compare with that 2.8 billion, that was really nothing. Now, there is nothing wrong with, particularly wrong with a government agency announcing investigation on its website, right? But we should also be aware that this is the first time the SAMR, the Antitrust Authority, has ever done that because in the past, it has always kept a very low profile in investigating cases precisely for fear of damaging company stock prices. Now, I should also note the timing of the announcement was strategically planned in advance because it was the Christmas Eve, so the long holiday break will allow the agency the room to moderate the market reaction 
if the announcement turned out to be too harsh. So this need for moderation might explain why the agency released this positive news on the Sunday before the next trading day, which is December the 27th, stating that it had completed evidence gathering and then the firm was very cooperative during the process. Okay, now some of you may be thinking, mm, if the authority is a really challenging court, then they should be free to do whatever they want. I mean, that's actually not true. Much to the contrary, Chinese officials are subject to very severe bureaucratic constraints. Now, as one official once told me, we can only dance within the boundaries of our prescribed stage. Now, what he was talking about was referring to this phenomenon of power fragmentation in the Chinese bureaucracy, which imposed significant constraints on any agency's freedom of action. So because each government department in China have their own responsibilities and objectives that define the act of action. But um, at the same time, they also have overlapping responsibilities. So this kind of turf war and interagency rivalries are very common. And that's what I call this Chinese styles of checks and balance. Now, Chinese antitrust enforcement is actually a prime example of this. Now, in the first decade of the antitrust enforcement, the power to enforce the law was split among three different agencies. You have the NDRC, which we already talked about, and then the SAIC. These two agencies were jointly in charge of conducting investigation. Now, you also have the Minister of Commerce, we call MOFCOM, was in charge of merger enforcement. The different missions, culture, and structure of these three agencies happily influence how they formulate the enforcement agenda, their, reg their regulatory approach, as well as the final regulatory outcome. Now, let's first take a look at the NDRC. Now, this agency used to be the State Planning Commission and was very powerful when the Chinese economy was still centrally planned. And over the years, the NDRC has seen its power decline as market reforms deepen. So the NDSC saw antitrust enforcement as a golden opportunity to step back into the policy limelight and to fulfill its original mission of price control and insurance stability. Now, in many cases investigated by NDSC, you saw companies actually volunteer to reduce prices. Now, from an antitrust standpoint, we think it's like really unusual for companies to do that. But we also have to understand this move, these extra legal remedies offered by these companies were precisely designed to please the regulator, right? I mean, because reducing prices is perfectly consistent with the NDS's original mission of price control and, you know, stabilizing prices. Now, I should say that in the Qualcomm phase, you see that at the bottom, um, the firm offer a 35% reduction in the royalty that they would charge for the Chinese licensees. But that uh, very important remedy, arguably the most important remedy, um, but was not included in the NDIC's ultimate decision. Right? So, so this deal, um, you know, this royalty reduction deal was agreed upon uh, behind the scenes. Now, understanding the culture of an organization is also very important to understand its behavior. Um, the NDSC used to be the planning commission and to this day remain a very important player in macroeconomic management and industrial planning. And that's why people call it the little state council. It is not really a law enforcement agency and you know it has like almost 1000 staff, but very few of its uh, members possess a law degrees. So you can see, you can say, you know, this law enforcement is not really in the DNA of this ministry. 
Thus, it is not surprising during antitrust investigation, the NDIC continued to employ this old tactic of holding interviews with companies. And some of these interviews were so controversial, they, they led to uh, accusations of administrative power bills and violations of due process. You know, that probably also sold the seats for the complaints from corporate America, which ultimately led to the trade war, you know, a few years later. Now, in 2018, the three former antitrust agencies were consolidated into a new bureau, which was absorbed by the SAIC to form a new ministry called the SAMR. Now, because the SAIC had been a market regulator with decades of experience in law enforcement, I saw this as a very promising step for professionalizing Chinese antitrust enforcement. And indeed, since 2018, we have seen the new Antitrust Bureau inject more transparency into its process and streamline the merger review procedures. And there have been less complaints and you know, a few complaints from businesses about due process violations. And this is good news, but it doesn't mean that the SEML wouldn't use antitrust law to achieve broader policy objectives. Now, some of you may have read in the news that the SAMR and a few other regulators recently held administrative guidance meeting with major Chinese tech firms after the Alibaba fine. Now, at the meeting, a large number of firms, now as reported by Wall Street Journal, um, offered to ratify their, their conduct, um, such as the choose one from two policy that Alibaba was investigated for. And interestingly, now, these firms' offer was so broad, they went far beyond uh, antitrust law. As I show you here, this compliance letter from JD, uh, which emphasized its adherence to a long list of law, you know, consumer protection law, e-commerce law, anti-monopoly law, advertising law, price law, all of this are within the enforcement mandates of the SAMR. So it appears to me that the SAMR is leveraging its antitrust function to strengthen its enforcement in many other areas of market regulation. So this development, you know, this very new development reinforced my point about how the mission, culture, and structure of an enforcement agency really matters for an enforcement outcome. Now, I want to shift my focus to the international arena and explain how China weaponized antitrust in the Sino-US tech war. We should start by noting that the U.S. executive branch has wide discretion in prosecuting foreign businesses and individuals and has strategically used its legal discretion as an instrument of trade in foreign policy against China. And this is quite clear in cases like Huawei and ZTE. And these cases were a sort of wake-up call for Chinese policymakers who were scrambling to decide, you know, what kind of policy tools we can use to counter the U.S. long-arm jurisdiction. Now, China quickly identified antitrust as an appealing weapon to use against the US. Now, this is primarily because antitrust allowed the Chinese government to exert extraterritorial jurisdiction over US businesses' practices, as long as these companies have sufficient sales to the Chinese market. Now, for instance, a large merger transaction between a US company and a European firm, which seemingly have nothing to do with China, can be held up by China's merger control. Now, Qualcomm's acquisition of NXP in 2018 was one such example. The deal obtained clearance from eight jurisdictions, and China was the only one that held up this deal. Now, China didn't block this deal. It just strategically delayed approval to such an extent that the parties eventually uh, withdrew the transaction. 
Now, as you see recently in Wall Street Journal, Cisco's acquisition of Acacia was similarly delayed for a really long time, even though this deal was ultimately clear, but Cisco need to pay a much higher price for the delay. And um, just last month, Applied Materials, which is top US chip um, supplier, have to walk away from um, its proposed deal to acquire Japanese electric company again because of the Chinese approval delay. Now, in addition to holding up large mergers, the Chinese antitrust agency has also flashed its antitrust as a weapon to investigate foreign firms, as you see in this news article from Global Times. So um, it was saying that, you know, China can investigate companies like Qualcomm, Cisco, and Apple under, you know, laws like cybersecurity review law and anti-monopoly law. And so as Sino-US tensions in, uh, increase, Chinese antitrust may become like a battleground for trade and national security issues. Now let's uh, examine how China itself is regulated by foreign antitrust authorities. Now, China is not only unique as a regulator, but also as a target for regulation. We will start by looking at the antitrust challenges Chinese companies face in Europe. Now, after 2008, Europe saw a very large influx of capital from China. The vast majority of these investments were made by the Chinese state-owned firms. And this gave the European Commission a very big headache. You know, are these companies separate entities or are they just part of a bigger China Inc. led by the Chinese government? And um, for those of you who understand this, this area of literature, I mean, there's not really a black or white answer to this question. And this usual regulatory emphasis on ownership and control can actually produce misleading results. Now, in 2016, a French state-owned farm and and, and a Chinese nuclear power company, um, was EDF and CGN, wanted to create a joint venture in the picture here in Hinkley Point in the UK. Um, they run into a very big problem because the European Commission decided for the first time that it will actually treat all Chinese firms in the energy sector as one single firm for purpose of antitrust analysis. And this had huge ramification uh, for EU law. But ironically, it also puts the commission at risk of jeopardizing its own jurisdiction over mergers between Chinese firms or export cartels between Chinese firms, right? Because if these companies are just part of China Inc., then commission should have no authority over those cases because these would be deals made internally within a company. Now, this explains the EU is, why the EU is increasingly looking for alternative regulatory tools in dealing with Chinese investment. And its most ambitious proposal came last year uh, when the commission released a white paper um, proposing a new merger control regime to vet state-backed acquisitions. And many observers believe that this move um, is precisely targeted at Chinese firms. Now, even when Chinese firms are facing regulatory trouble in Europe, they are also facing challenges in the United States. And it's well known that China's increasing trade dominance have so anxiety among US politicians. And that was one of the reasons why the Trump administration imposed very high tariffs on Chinese steel at the beginning of, the, of the, this trade war. And the fears of Chinese dominance were further elevated during COVID um, as Americans realize how much they depend on China for PPE supplies. And in fact, America now imports 97% of its antibiotics and 90% of its vitamin C from China. Now, at the same time, China's dominance in those uh, essential component markets 
have been conducive to the formation of export cartels. And in the past two decades, many Chinese manufacturers have been hit with antitrust litigation in the United States precisely for conducting export cartels. Now, the most famous case um, involved a group of vitamin C producers from China, and this case went all the way up to the US Supreme Court. Now, these producers did not deny that they have coordinated prices, but they defended themselves on the basis that it was the Chinese government that asked them to fix prices. The Minister of Commerce uh, from China also um, um, acknowledged uh, by submitting an amicus brief in a very unprecedented move, uh, acknowledging that it had indeed compelled these farms to organize an export cartel to avoid anti-dumping challenges. And in the end, the Supreme Court decided that it was not bound by the interpretation by the Minister of Commerce and instead deferred to the US branch um, in deciding how to handle this case. So this makes the Chinese exporters in a catch-22 situation because, you know, because of the abundant supply um, in China, and so there's an oversupply in many areas, right? So if they compete fiercely, inevitably they would drive the prices so low, and then they could be subject to anti-dumping charges. Now, on the other hand, if they coordinate in advance and raise prices, then they might be violating US antitrust law, right? So the situation puts the Chinese exporters in a very precarious position. Finally, I'd like to offer some of the books inside on US-China relations, um, Chinese regulation of big tech, as well as um, data regulation. Now, for a really long time, people asked this question, is China a friend or a foe? Now, more and more of you may decide that China is no longer a friend. Um, but the reality remains that the Chinese and the US economies are tightly integrated and there are mutual benefits for cooperation uh, at both sides, right? In, in many areas, like including climate, right? It's a hot topic recently. So the question becomes in the absence of friendship and trust, is there any hope for cooperation? Now, I hope this book um, tells you, yes, right? I mean, you see, although foreign firms are vulnerable to regulatory attacks from Chinese authorities, Chinese, Chinese firms are equally vulnerable to attacks from foreign regulators. And we are seeing tightening scrutiny over Chinese firms from both the EU and the US regulators. So the fact that both sides can obtain significant leverage over the other is actually a good thing because this, this is a kind of hostage exchange situation that is essential to maintaining peace between the two countries. And that's precisely why I think more integration rather than less is, is uh, helpful for peace. Now, for instance, if more Chinese companies are blocked from the US market, like what TikTok, WeChat, or Huawei have experienced, then the United States will have less leverage over China. And that actually makes the US operation in China, think about Qualcomm, think about Tesla, right? More vulnerable. This company will become more vulnerable in China. Now, let's also take a look at the book's insight on Chinese fintech regulation. So in the past couple of months, a regulatory storm has blown into China's tech sector, right? In its group's IPO, which is supposedly the largest IPO ever, was suspended just 48 hours before its launch. Now, many of the major themes in this book, um, which we just talked about, are incredibly helpful in explaining what is going on with Chinese regulation of big tech. And we all know that Jack Ma's speech was a very important trigger. 
But given all this regulatory concern that people have, particularly the regulator have over ants, why did ant get the green light to launch its IPO in the first place? So in this op-ed I um, published in uh, Project Syndicate recently, I argue this has to do with power fragmentation in the Chinese bureaucracy, which is a point I consistently highlight in this book. So Chinese fintech companies like Ant, they are very good at seeking um, regulatory arbitrage. Um, and by taking advantage of these conflicting goals and missions of different agencies as we talk about, right? So the People's Bank of China, which oversees prudential regulation, has been a very persistent regulator and has kept a very close eye on Ant from the very start. Now, other financial regulators like the China Securities Regulatory Commission, the CSRC, have very different agenda. The CSRC actually expedited hence IPO um, uh, because it saw that as an important boost to the domestic securities market, particularly when many Chinese farms have been forced to delist from the United States. So in the eyes of the CSRC, this successful launch of Ant's IPO would have been a piece of national pride to the US uh, sanctions. So again, you see different agencies have different incentive in regulating businesses based on their different missions and objectives. Now, this analytical framework in the book is also helpful for analyzing other areas of regulation. Just to give you an example here, data because it's a very hot topic these days. Now, similar to antitrust, bureaucratic politics also dominates administrative enforcement process of data protection law. And in China, there are currently at least four regulators in charge of legislation and enforcement, and there are other uh, industry regulators that could be involved as well. Now, similarly, the degree of power that the government has over businesses, again, we go back to the first slide about the power imbalances between businesses and government, also leads to very deep um, foreign mistrust of foreign firms when it comes to data security, right? I mean, that's precisely the reason why firms like TikTok or WeChat have experienced many difficulties as they expand in other countries like the United States, precisely because of data protection issues. And I would like to pause there. And thanks very much. And I really look forward to discussing this book with Matt and the audience here. Thank you. Wow, thank you, uh, Angela. That was a tremendous amount of, um, of insight. And I have a lot of questions myself. Um, we are opening it up to Q&A. So um, please do type your question in the Q&A box. Um, we already have a couple, but I'm gonna take my privilege and ask um, my question first. And so the first has to do with um, whether you have observed the articulation of a theory of antitrust in China along the lines that, you know, we see these kinds of intellectual debates um, in the United States and Europe over time and, and, and regulators in those two markets have different authorities and antitrust. And so if you've seen the emergence of any consistent principles or debates on antitrust within the Chinese market. Um, and then secondly, which, you know, someone's asked um, about the application of China's anti-monopoly law to SOEs in China. And so whether um, there's any consideration of, um, of using, um, you know, as, as you talk about power fragmentation, you know, using certain parts of the Chinese bureaucracy to try to discipline SOEs at different, you know, within different parts of the Chinese fragmented bureaucracy. So, um, so those were sort of my two questions and, and one from the audience so far. 
Thank you very much. But um, well, I mean, these are very interesting questions. So first of all, regarding whether there have been any consensus as to how to regulate um, big tech in China, you know, the, the scope of the public discussion is limited due to censorship. And obviously the government control the media, right? I mean, so what we see from most uh, media outlets, um, you, you see more or less a consensus of what to do, which is driven down from, from Beijing, a top-down initiative. And what is particularly unique about this round of the Chinese antitrust enforcement is unlike before, where it's mostly a kind of like a, a bottom-up uh, process, this time is really driven from a top-down uh, initiative. So this is like part of what we are seeing now is part of a larger law enforcement campaign against these companies. Um, so all the rhetoric have been closely shaped, as you see, you know, as soon as Alibaba was, uh, investigation was announced, there was 10 minutes later, there was a People Daily, uh, you know, commentary, you know, put into put in there just to shape the rhetoric because they know other media outlets will quote and this this commentary will also guide you know other media outlets including those commercial media outlets as well right i mean so we at least on the surface you sort of see a consensus of what we need to do and everybody applaud the government's action but underneath i believe there must be different uh, opinions you know that we don't see in the public discussion Right. And then obviously the big tech companies themselves have very effective lobbying. They have been preparing for this day for a really long time. And um, they have done um, tremendous lobbying, I suspect, you know, behind the scenes as well. Um, as you see um, earlier, uh, in early November last year, uh, when the agency released a draft guidelines on online platform, um, and then in if compare that version of the guidelines with the version that was finally published in February um, this year, um, there was a, a lot of changes and all these changes were quite positive and favorable for big tech. You know, they remove, I mean, they remove a lot of controversial um, provisions, supposedly will make it easier for regulator to, uh, to find dominance, deter determine dominance, and supposedly will make um, the possession of data more, like, uh, you know, more likely to lead to dominance. They remove all these controversial provisions, right? I mean, so there must be a lot of things happening behind the scene, and there could be internal disagreement as to how we deal with these companies, right? I mean, and even for, if you stay, um, you know, even you you stay in from the standpoint of um, those uh, regulators, I think they are also confronted with competing policy goals here. On the one hand, you do want to foster innovation, and because these are the you know national champions, right? I mean, if you think about techno nationalism, it doesn't seem to make any sense for China to crack down its own tech firms. But on the other hand, you know, authoritarian government also have agenda and policy to preserve social stability, right? I mean, if, you know, the, because, because the concentration of the market has led to a lot of, um, you know, antitrust issues, not just antitrust, but also social problems like inequality, you know, employment, labor, a lot of issues, right? I mean, so there is also other policy objectives the government needs to consider. So they are, you know, internally, I'm, I'm sure the government needs to balance um, these two competing goals. And that's precisely why I believe, you know, the big tech has been very effective in the lobbying. And it, it can also be reflected in the recent move by the antitrust regulator. Because as soon as you see after Alibaba was fine, the market was panicked, you know, 
who will be next? You know, would it, would it be Meituan? Would it be Tencent? Right? I mean, everybody's calling me. It's like, yeah, just tell me who's next. And I said, you know, I, I was going to re reiterate those points I just I, I just talked about. You know, the government has many many policy uh, that it, consideration here. So it's not surprising because you see a few days later, the SAMR announced that we're going to have this um, conference meeting with all these big tech firms. And if they rectify their behavior, submit all this ratification plans and make this commitment in advance in public, um, you know, and, 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 and it seems like they're not going to investigate them, right? I mean, so the, the, the agency is simultaneously extending both a promise and a threat here. If you comply, you know, then there's no more investigation and that, you know, calm the investors, tame the market as you see how much 10 cents in the mid one stock has plummeted in the past couple of months, right? Because of Alibaba, because people are afraid the spillover effects into their companies. So, so this tame the market, you know, assure the investors. But on the other hand, they still want to maintain a threat, right? I mean, if you don't behave, you know, I can come back to investigate you anytime. I mean, I can come back to investigate your past exclusionary practices as well. They have perfectly legitimate reason to do that. Like, so um, you, you see, this is a very Chinese style of governance, and it also reflects this kind of multi-agenda uh, multi on the government's um, plates. Yeah, yeah. And regard to the second question about SOE, I'm actually, um, there is a perfect example in this, um, uh, in Chinese antitrust enforcement. In 2011, um, the NDRC, which is the former antitrust regulator, they investigated China Telecom and China Unicorn, two of the largest state-owned telecom firm for uh, abuse of dominance. And that case was also strategically um, uh, announced on the Chinese state media. It was actually announced on state television, <laughs> similar to the real time case that we talk about. And actually, these are the only two times uh, in, in, the, in the past 12, time, uh, past 12 years that I ever seen the antitrust authority announce this case on state media. And this move was precisely to gain momentum to push forward this case, because um, that case, they run into a lot of trouble um, bureaucratic resistance we already talked about in, in the in the paper right I mean uh, in the book you know they're not challenging court but they face with a lot of bureaucratic constraints when they go after particularly go after large stable firms because these stable firms themselves have bureaucratic rank their rank is actually higher than the antitrust bureau had right I mean um, they didn't take them seriously at the at the beginning to at that time, 2011, there's only three years when the antitrust enforcement was, uh, antitrust law was implemented, right? I mean, so they didn't take the authority seriously, even when the authority go and investigate them. And they also have a lot of backers behind them because the state-owned firm can more easily leverage and lobby within the government, right? I mean, they have the state, um, they have the sector regulator, the, um, the MIIT, the Ministry of In Industry and Information Technology, which is a sector regulator overseeing um, telecom pricing. So the sector regulators were upset with NDIC investigation because NDIC also have some policy control over telecom pricing. So you see this antitrust investigation as a move of agency to trying to expand and, and like uh, its turf and encroach upon MIIT's um, territory. So MIIT very like very fiercely uh, objected to this. And then there is also the SESAC, like the, the 
state assets uh, watchdog, uh, which concern, you know, if you bring this kind of cases, you know, it's going to have strong repercussion to the firm stock prices. It will lead to, you know, state assets loss. And that was precisely what happened, right? I mean, the NDIC, when it announced on the state television, it caused these two farm stock, uh, you know, plummet dramatically on that day because it sent a very bad signal to the market it was like is this farm you know falling out of favor with the government i mean why is this government using chinese antitrust law to deal with this his own thing on farm right so you imagine all this uh, bureaucratic existence um gave ndsc a very big headache at that time and that's precisely why it used media to try to push forward this case and eventually this case resulted in kind of like a compromise. So these two firms offer remedies to kind of address some of this concern. It also possibly also expand NDSC's turf in a sense, because if you look at the final remedies they offer, they actually have, you know, not, not just have to address the antitrust issues, but to expand NDRC's uh, control over telecom pricing. Um, but at the same time, NDRC did not find these companies so the case was suspended. There was no penalty. You know, that's just ended. So I, I see it as a compromise behind the scene among these different, um, you know, bureaucratic interests. But that's a perfect example of power fragmentation in China. Yeah. Yes, it is a perfect example. It's a fascinating case. Um, so um, I'm going to ask a question from um, from Bill Xiao, um, uh, my colleague at the Fairbank Center, who asked a similar question about the different standards and criteria for, mo for monopoly and antitrust in the US versus China. And so in terms of, you know, for example, looking at, um, if I can kind of um, add in a little bit um, to his question. So, you know, in the United States for such a long time, it's been about price, right? It's been about price as the determinant of, of you know, abuse of market position or monopoly. And in China, clearly it's not just price, it's something else. And so is there a consistent way of thinking about those standards in China and how would you compare it to the US? Well, I mean, China, Chinese authorities are very much up to date. I mean, they follow whatever the US, the EU was talking about very closely. If you, if you talk to the people on the ground, I mean, they're totally on top of everything, every single law, every debate that was happening in other jurisdictions. Um, so at the academic level or even at the agency level, I think they're well worth what's happening right now. I mean, there is a bigger debate in the US right now, you know, whether we've from the traditional emphasis on price to a maybe broader objective about quality, about innovations, right? I mean, but in China, um, I think our authority needs to take into account much more, uh, more uh, consideration than just, you know, price, um, innovations, and quality. And all of these will be important priority uh, considerations, but I think they need to consider more. Right. I mean, as you see um, recently in this um, in Wall Street Journal, there have been a lot of um, rumors, you know, from 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 uh, the, the, the media. Right. I mean, for instance, Alibaba is asked to divest uh, media assets. Um, there's been rumor. I mean, obviously, at the end, um, you see the penalty decision. There's no divestiture of any sort. And by the way, under Chinese law, there's not really a legal basis for the authority to ask the firm to divest its assets on the basis of abuse of dominance anyway. So at the time when I saw the Wall Street Journal paper, I was quite puzzled. I mean, where does this come from? But at least, you know, it, it has to come from somewhere within the bureaucracy. Somebody at the bureaucracy has proposed, you know, we just feel uncomfortable. This firm has grown so big 
and um, you know, and has the power to control public opinion. Right? I mean, there have been instances where um, it seems like um, uh, the firm has manipulated some of the public opinion involving the scandal of, of its executive, and that worried the government. Right? I mean, the control of the public opinion was something that they they worry about. I mean, that you know, but as to how the government deal with those issues, they could use antitrust. To solve this problem potentially, I mean, because it, it is it is you know if they bought in, um, you know Weibo, they bought in um, uh, South China Morning Post, they could unwind this transaction. Although it's not a very strong legal basis, but at the same time, you know, as I talk about in this talk, sometimes firms offer extra extra legal remedies to please regulator. Right? I mean, what they, there's no nothing wrong for the firm to just volunteer. Right? I mean, even if the government doesn't say it in the decision, right? I mean, as you see in the Qualcomm decision, right? The most important remedy was not incorporated in the legal decision. It was bargaining behind the scenes, right? I mean, so I would not be surprised if the firm divests some part of the assets that the government doesn't like, even if it's not super, uh, theoretically under the law. Right, I mean, um, and it's to address some of the concern of the government over these big tech firms, yeah. So related um, related to that, there's an excellent question from Lei Sun, um, which is taking all of this into consideration, you know, do you feel that China's antitrust enforcement and practice is strengthening the rule of law or weakening it? So, and, and, and you know, there's evidence on both sides and what do you think? Um, it's a very complicated <laughs> question. I mean, as a law professor, what I see is particularly promising is the agency restructurings that happened in 2018, which um, consolidated all the enforcement power under uh, the SAMR, which is the new ministry, because this is a traditionally a market regulator have decades of experience in law enforcement. So naturally, you expect this agency will know what it's doing, unlike you know before when we have a industrial planner and DRC to enforce this law, right? Just and these agencies go out to talk to merchants and force them to low prices. I mean, that's not how it's supposed to be done. So I do see some positive sign with Chinese antitrust enforcement, particularly with this restructuring, uh, you know, this change of institutional structure, which is hugely important. But that's a point that tends to be overlooked because lawyers and the public tend to look at the law itself, kind of look at the black and white letter. They didn't know, you know, how much the institutional factors, like including the people there, the culture of the organization, the structure of the organization has such a huge impact on how it is enforced, right? I mean, but on the other hand, as you see in the recent round of the law enforcement campaign, which was very much driven by a top-down initiative, right? I mean, you see this kind of repeated uh, use of strategic shaming. You see this kind of, on Alibaba, right? Which causes farms to lose um, how, how much, like 13% um, of market cap, and it's still not coming back, you know, even though it's stock prices is rebounded um, on the, when the penalty decision was released, it actually rebounded by up to 8% on that day, but it's still not coming back. The, the stock prices were still, um, you know, quite suppressed. Um, but, you know, this kind of strategic reputation damage inflict on the company will have a long lasting impact on this firm. 
right? I mean, that also explains why the firm was very proactive in cooperating with the agency. Remember in, back in 2015, and um, the Alibaba also have a public route with uh, SAIC, which is the predecessor of the current antitrust authority, SAMR. At that time, Alibaba did, you know, fight very fiercely in public. You know, it complained about um, the agency's improper procedure uh, of um, uh, scrutinizing um, this counterfeit products, and they make a public route. Uh, calling the director of the, uh, the e-commerce bureau, blowing the black whistle, right? I mean, although eventually that public route also caused Alibaba stock to tumble by 8% on that day. <laughs> but you see at that time, the firm was more fight, you know, more ready to fight, you know, but here it was like completely tame, right? I mean, it was like, we thank the regulator, we're ready to move on, you know? Um, it's a very, very different dynamic. So because this strategic shaming strategy was extremely helpful. Um, and you also see, again, you know, this, this kind of administrative interviews that have been conducted with all these big tech firms. And these big tech firms volunteer to offer preemptive commitments of compliance, right? I mean, and then now there's no more, you know, it seems like the government is making a promise that if you comply, we're not going to, you know, go after your past practices. I mean, that doesn't seem to be on the basis of, um, you know, law, right? I mean, if you have, you know, you know, this firm has conducted exclusionary conduct that could be violating law, then it's the responsibility of the agencies to go after this company. It's like, I mean, what, what is the legal basis of the settlement? I mean, this is not even, uh, you know, something within the realm of the antitrust law. There's not this kind of, it's not a legal basis for doing that. I'm preemptively settled, right? I mean, and, and also think about um, along with the penalty decision that was issued on Alibaba, the SAMR imposed an administrative administrative guidance note for Alibaba. There was a 16-point administrative guidance note that was hardly mentioned in any media um, coverage. But if you go to take a look at this 16 guidance note, which um, uh, Alibaba is required to submit a ratification plan by the end of this month. And they also need to submit an annual report um, to the agency in the next three years. You will see this guidance note not just deal with antitrust, it deals all sorts of compliance issues that the firm um, need to need to deal with. I mean, an audit compliance should obviously also fall within the mandates of the antitrust authority SAMR, which was just talked about. I mean, this they're trying to leverage antitrust as the function um, to expand into other territories of enforcement, right? I mean, this regulatory spillover was clearly um, was very explicitly <laughs> indicated in this uh, administrative guidance. And again, administrative guidance, is, there's no legal basis in law, right? I mean, you can make administrative guidance under the, according to law or not according to law, right? I mean, it's just guidance from the agency. But in the current political environment and this situation, is Alibaba going to follow this guidance? Yes. Right? I mean, they are definitely going to submit this replication plan, right? I mean, they're going to submit this annual report and there will be no challenge, right? I mean, so you do see this kind of repeated um, dynamics, you know, unfortunately you see this kind of extra legal remedies that were offered. You see the extra legal measures that was applied um, in the current round of the law enforcement campaign. Okay, so um, 
so I'm tempted to say then, you know, I guess then the, the, the conclusion is that there's really no rule of law in China and hardly even rule by law. So for a long time, right, um, you know, the kind of the theory of what legal development in China was, was, you know, the development of legal foundations for the state to rule, but not to constrain itself. But now, I guess what, I, what I'm hearing is that now there's not even this idea that there should be law that forms the basis of state power, that state power is kind of exercised at will. Is that, is that the correct conclusion well, I, or is that I, too far? I think um, it depends. The answer is it depends because like, as we see in the slides that I show um, this Economist paper and as, as, um, as well as the data disclosed by the Economist, right? I mean, you did see a significant surge administrative appeals, like appeals against the government in Chinese court in recent years, like because of the amendment of the administrative litigation law, which significantly reduced the barrier for ordinary people to file suits against government, right? But um, so far, just within the realm of, you know, this kind of cases between big business and the government, we don't, haven't seen, you know, that law change, mm -hmm. um, that promising change has affected that category of cases, right? I mean, so maybe for some other categories, like, you know, ordinary citizens suing a small bureau agents, you know, which can solve the government's uh, agency problem. I mean, those cases may be easier, you know, trademark disputes may be easier, um, but not with regard to, you know, the biggest case between government and the businesses. Great. So that's a good segue into a, a large number of questions we have basically on these big tech firms. So a lot of questions related to Jack Ma. Why did he give the speech that he gave in Shanghai? Did he miscalculate or misunderstand something about this new direction or, as you say, this new political climate? Um, and what is next? I mean, so you, I know everyone's calling you to ask what is next and who is next. But um, what are the implications for companies like uh, Tencent and ByteDance, given what happened? And relatedly, uh, Minya from BU asks, is there an exit option for Alibaba? So given this, um, you know, this kind of political climate you've described where antitrust will be wielded as a weapon in a larger struggle of the state versus large firms, um, is there any choice of like voice or exit, right? Basically for a company like Alibaba or it's what I'm hearing from you is they just must say, they thank the regulators, ask for another fine if they need to ask for another fine and, and move on. But is there any potential or any space uh, for firms like that to resist? Um, right, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of questions here. So Mac, maybe I do it one by one. First question is about Jack Ma. Why did he make that speech, right? I mean, everybody know he's like super, superstar um, business leader and have this cult light, you know, uh, aroma around him. And then he's, he's, but at the same time, if you look around, you know, the Chinese leading entrepreneurs, he's very much an outlier. Um, he's very outspoken. And he, um, he liked this uh, media engagement. I and mean, if you contrast this with um, Pony Ma uh, of Tencent, right? I mean, very, much more low key, much more reserved, you know? So in a sense that Ma is uh, already an outlier among Chinese entrepreneurs. And as to why he made that particular con particularly controversial speech uh, in Shanghai, this really, we, we need to really, <laughs> if you don't mind, I can tell you, you know, we need to go back a little bit to the regulatory history of N Group, you know, which is um, the FinTech giant that Jack Ma founded um, back in 2016. So, um, so Anne has operated in a regulatory minefield from the start. 
because um, it, it deal with payment business. It also do lending, insurance, uh, you know, investment, right? I mean, so over the years, the PBOC, the People's Bank of China has been keeping a very close eye, close scrutiny on various business uh, of Ant. But as we talk about in the book, right? I mean, power is fragmented within Chinese bureaucracy. So Ant, you know, haven't grown up on the Chinese soil and haven't been led by incredibly smart uh, leadership, right? I mean, people like Jack knows how to maneuver this kind of bureaucratic politics really well, right? I mean, um, because the power fragmentation, which is the Chinese style of checks and balance, allow the company the opportunity to seek for regulatory arbitrage, right? I mean, as we said, you know, authoritarian government has multi-purpose policy goals, right? They want economic prosperity, they want um, you know, social stability, and they want nationalism. They want the national champions as well, right? I mean, so Anne is very good at exploiting those, uh, you know, conflicting missions and objectives among different agencies and between different levels of government, right? I mean, uh, Alibaba and Ant obviously have very close relationship with um, the, the local government, right? I mean, so so they they trying to play uh, this game, you know, leveraging this different levels of government and the different agencies, different objective to play with each other. And, and I really see Ant as a success story because the, the company operate in such a difficult area, right? I mean, so have so much vested interest, but I was able to go that far you know, until last uh, uh, October, right? I mean, so, but but for all this period, and has been in a regulatory competition. It has been in a running competition with the regulator. That's what I write in the product syndicate uh, OPEX, right? I mean, because Jack Ma was saying, we have to run ahead of the regulator. We have to, otherwise we go nowhere, right? I mean, so, so they keep innovating their product and this innovation, this financial, innovation would not, you know, with, does not fall within the realm of the existing uh, regulation, right? Because they're new, right? I mean, and nobody, know, and also it's not clear which regulator should have policy control over that product. And let me give an example, right? I mean, they have this called Xianghu Bao, which is a mutual aid insurance product. And, um, and claim that this is not insurance. This is a mutual aid product. You know, people just put in their money and in, inside this pot, and if somebody gets sick, you know, they can take money from here. They can claim the money, right? I mean, it's not insurance, but it does look like insurance, right? I mean, so <laughs> they're very good, right? I mean, so there's always a regulatory lack between, you know, when they create a product and um, when the regulator can finally catch up, right? I mean, so, and, and, and you know, if you look at it in the past five years, they keep innovating, they keep creating things. And, and whenever they launch a product, uh, overnight, it become a sensational story. Like the, the next day, it become the largest fund, in, like Yorba become the largest investment fund in the world, right? Because Alipay is so huge, right? I mean, so they, they can create a scale very quickly and they can innovate very quickly. So the regulator was always like running behind uh, the company. And um, even when was Ant was going to, um, for, to file the IPO, now go back to when we already talked about why they can get the green line to get the IPO because of, they take, take advantage of this intense relationship between the United States and China. They want to see, use this as an example to boost China's domestic stock market, right? I mean, but even if after they file, the PBOC was still running, right? <laughs> the PBOC was still trying to ring in and particularly they're worried about this, um, the lending business because in the IPO perspectives, they saw, you know, like, the vast, vast majority of Ant's revenue derived 
from the lending business and from the microloan lending business, but Anne has no skin in the game in those businesses because 98% of the loans were extended by the state banks, right? I mean, so right now, if you look at Anne's balance sheet, it's perfect, right? There's no default, you know, and the default rate is very low. I mean, balance sheet looks perfect, right? Right now it all looks fine, but there's a hidden risk, right? I mean, because, because that, Business model could potentially lead to moral hazard, which is the point, you know, American audience are very familiar with the back in 2008 supply mortgage crisis, right? So the PBOC has perfectly legitimate concern over Ant, and even Ant had to file for IPO, the PBOC continued to press ahead with a lot of regulatory uh, rules, including, you know, you see back in September, um, the PBOC issued draft rules that indicate it will regulate Ant as a financial holding company. But, um, you know, during Ant's uh, IPO roadshow, Ant very aggressively promote itself as a tech firm. Um, so, and that leads to a direct conflict between the regulator and Ant, right? I mean, because having a, a tech firm's valuation is much, much higher um, than have the valuation much higher than a financial company. And so, um, and, and that's why, you know, I guess behind the scenes, the regulator has been pushing for to push forward that draft rules to, to regulate ends as a financial holding company, as you see now, what's happening now, right? But, and that will have an effect on ants price, stock prices. But at that point, when Ma make the speech, um, they, they have just got the valuation already. And, and that was huge, right? I mean, over 300 billion um, US dollars, right? I mean, so, so you can see the tension is already, always there. And it's not surprising that Ma was always unhappy with the, was not happy with the financial regulation. Um, and maybe that's the reason why he want to, um, to, uh, to voice this discontent uh, in this very high profile event. Um, but obviously it also gave an opening for this regulator to bring in Jack Ma, yeah. So the second question on Tencent, <laughs> what's going to happen with Tencent and firms firms like ByteDance? Um, well, I mean, that goes back to the point of, um, you know, the, the different policy objectives of the government, right? I mean, um, companies like Tencent, um, Biden's are national prize of the government. It's never in Chinese government's interest to, um, you know, sabotage these companies or undermine these companies, right? I mean, these companies uh, will be um, tremendously important for China's economic growth and also to fulfill China's uh, kind of China's ambition as like um, a high-tech leader, um, like this kind of supremacy in technology. And think about, you know, I, I see this kind of crackdown. Um, I actually wrote another small piece. I see the, what, what can really result from this crackdown is like these companies will, um, will be nudged towards a different direction. You know, because if you look at um, United States and China, look at their big tech businesses, China is the only one um, that can foster tech giants um, like the United States right now. But our tech firms, when we're talking about Alibaba, Tencent, ByteDance, this household name, they did not fly because of cutting edge innovations like Huawei. They fly because they are able to uh, you know, cater to the vast consumer market. You know, we are very good with mobile payment, fintech, and um, you know, online communication and e-commerce, 
right? I mean, but these are not, you know, truly innovative, um, you know, uh, like technology, and not those that China desperately needs right now. Um, instead, you know, you see this tech firm like Tencent investing in community group buying, which is squeezing the interest of the small and medium-sized, you know, grocery stores, right? I mean, this is not, if you stand in the shoes of the government, this is not the kind of competition that we want. What, what the Chinese leadership want, which is the biggest elephant in the room, is that how do we close the gap? in this technological rivalry with the United States, right? I mean, we need more companies like Huawei. We need more companies that, you know, the Chinese government think we need, we need companies that really are truly innovative that invest in financial, foundational science and technology, right? To close this gap. And so, and, and, and if they look around, really, they can really count on these people because these firms, because they're cash rich, right? I mean, they have tons of money, they have, an army of talents. They are very sophisticated in software development already. So it's very natural for the government to count on this firm to move towards those directions. And that kind of intention is quite clear. As you see, um, you know, recently there was a People's Daily commentary saying, don't just focus on selling cabbage, focus on looking at the stars, right? <laughs> you know, aim, have bigger ambitions and, you know, and I think the government will have stronger uh, urge to push this company towards that direction because the antitrust does give the government a leverage, right? I mean, because these are not state owned firms. For the government to discipline these companies, antitrust is an incredibly useful tool. And that, that tool is always overhanging uh, this company's head, right? Because then you're so successful, right? I mean, that your, your biggest vulnerability will be antitrust. And the government can always go after you using antitrust. But of course, if you're going to become Huawei, I mean, we're not going to use antitrust law over Huawei, right? I mean, so I think. These firms will strive to become more innovative in the sense, in the direction the government desire as a form of self-protection. But as to how efficient would that be, that's another question, right? But you already see the company doing that, right? I mean, Tencent have invested hundreds of billions of dollars in digital infrastructure. Alibaba have done, have, have invested in, in semiconductor. And Baidu has invested heavily on driverless car. And I think in the next few years, you should in, expect these companies to do more in those areas. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll take, yeah, last question. I think this is, uh, you're, you're putting together just an amazing amount of information and um, we're grateful to you, but we realize we're probably taxing you quite a bit. So the very last question is a very sort of um, antitrust question and it's about price fixing and who's, uh, who's adjudicating it. So, um, so the question is that vertical price fixing as opposed to horizontal has been the subject of policy debate in the US with more conservatives kind of arguing that vertical price fixing should not be subject to anti-monopoly regulation. In China, there doesn't appear to be any sympathy with that viewpoint. And does that sound right to you? Oh, yeah. Our regulators love vertical price price fixing. <laughs> we, we, we love it. In, they love it in a sense that because these are the cases very easy to go after. Mm -hmm. And um, and to this day, you know, during the days of the NDRC, I mean, the NDRC just like completely prioritized on doing these RPM cases precisely because, you know, unlike cartels, which is very secretive, it's very difficult to gather evidence. RPM is, you know, 
you, you more or less have some complaints, you know, it's much easier to identify the evidence and unlike abuse, which takes, you know, exhausting amount of time to, to do the investigation and also do the market analysis, RPM, you know, when you find it, you see it, right? I mean, so um, they supposedly show a much lower burden of proof in investigating those cases and actually form the major component of the enforcement efforts um, for the first uh, decade of the enforcement. And to this day, you continue to see they continuously bring these cases in, in RPM. Um, it's now as to how much it benefits consumer, that's another story because in, in those cases, you always see, you know, as soon as the regulator bring in, they raise their hands and then they uh, offer to reduce prices, but how long they reduce the price, that's another question, how long that will last. Um, and, and those cases were rarely challenged in court. Um, and um, I mean, it, it just kept a very convenient policy tool for the regulator to stabilize prices. And unfortunately we're still seeing that direction going on these days. I think there was a question earlier about exit option of right. these companies. Yeah, I mean, exit of options of companies like Alibaba. I don't think companies like Alibaba is going to exit. I mean, in contrast to this kind of dire consequences that have been portrayed in the Western media, right? I mean, we have to bear in mind that these Chinese companies grow up in China's unique political and economic institutions. They know how to adapt to this institutional environment very well. I mean, they have many, they have many ways that they can continue to, you know, find find a room to grow, survive, or even prosper in the Chinese economy. And so I'm 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 quite optimistic about their resilience, right? I mean, we already talked about a very important strategy that they employ, which is a regulatory arbitrage. And I think they will continue to explore that opportunity, right? I mean, not just among different agencies, but even among different areas of law, right? I mean, so you see Alibaba and Tencent have been, uh, Ant Group and uh, Tencent have been asked to transfer data to the government, you know, government joint venture in order to, you know, and, and that will be, you know, will be a huge blow to their competitive advantage. But this, right, this uh, tech firms were saying, you know, we can't just transfer data um, to another firm because that will be violation of consumer privacy. Right, I mean, so they're very smart, right? I mean, they're playing different laws against each other. And I would think that they will be proactively seeking for privacy regulation to, to regulate themselves, to strengthen and entrench their own dominant position. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, there's a famous saying um, that those that doesn't kill me make me stronger. And I think that they might, they will emerge unscathed from this um, for a large extent. And then they might even become stronger in the future. This has been amazing. Um, we're lucky to have um, to have your voice in this, educating us um, in this incredible time. I mean, it's amazing to watch what's happening in China right now. Nobody knows more about these different agencies and what their purviews are and what their fights are um, than you do. So I highly recommend um, Angela Zhang's book and just please join me in thanking her um, for, for giving this talk on a bright early uh, morning in Hong Kong. Um, we're grateful to you. And so, um, so thank you very much for joining us. Um, Thank you very much, Matt. It was a great pleasure to be here.